Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, January the 15th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Earlier this week, the government published the report of the Commission on Mother and Baby Homes, which found, among other things, that many tens of thousands of women and children had been damaged and illegally mistreated, that thousands of infants had died and that many mothers had been forced to give their children up for adoption as part of a mechanism of institutional coercion, which was in place for more than half of the history of this independent state. On Wednesday, the Taoiseach apologised on behalf of that state and set out what steps are planned for remembrance and redress. But many questions have been raised about the report itself and even more about what really needs to happen now. To discuss this, I'm joined by Caelan Hogan, who's a journalist and the author of Republic of Shame, Stories from Ireland's Institutions for Fallen Women, also by our own political editor, Pat Leahy. But first, I want to welcome Elizabeth Coppin. Elizabeth is a survivor of the Magdalene Laundries. We wanted to get her personal perspective first on how the Irish state and the Catholic Church dealt with and now deals with historical abuse. Elizabeth, you're very welcome. Maybe you could tell our listeners first, Elizabeth, about your own story. My own story, uh, I was born in the county home. My mum, when she was pregnant um, in 1948, she uh, was not allowed to go into the hospital because the hospitals, contrary to what the government have told you, the hospitals in Ireland, were maternity hospitals, were only to be used by respectable married women. And this was a, a definite understanding all over Ireland. And my mum went to the hospital to arrange for her day to go in or whatever, and they told her, you're not coming here, go off, clear off, you know where to go. But anyway, my mum had to go into the county home. And um, the county home were workhouses. And when the Irish government took over Ireland and they got their emancipation, the Irish government's so-called emancipation, uh, they decided then to persecute women. So they decided that they would get young pregnant women in into the workhouses, even though they changed the name. The status stayed the same inside, where it was the feeble, the infirm, the outcast, the homeless. They were just the outcasts of society. And pregnant women then, young girls, were in there lifting, bathing, feeding uh, washing by hand their clothes. There was no such thing as a, the luxury of a washing machine. My mum told me the beds in there were disgusting. There were straw beds and it, the place stunk. And they had to work from morning till night and right up till they had their baby. And then they had the abuse, the abuse from the nuns who would oversee the births. Very seldom saw a doctor, very seldom. It was um, a very harsh regime, she said. It was desperate. And it was very sad. There was nobody had visitors. Nobody knew where anyone was. If they decided to kill us all, she said it dawned on her once. If they decided to kill us, nobody would know where we are. But she was lucky. She had a dad. 
and then um, got her dad, my grandfather, uh, to uh, she, she wrote him and said because you ha- you were you had to stay there for so long to pay off your debt, and if you didn't, God only knows what happened to you then. But she wrote to my granddad and said to him that would he pay a hundred pounds to get her and me out, and he did. He came in with a hundred pound collected us and took us back to his house. So there was money. It was a money racket. It was a. It was all about uh, repression of women. It was about greed. It was about corruption. It was ab- abuse of power. They were the scum of the earth who did this to their own citizens. It was a division of Irish society. So, and then I went to my granddad's and my mom's and then she married someone who wasn't the best person to me. I'm not going to tell you too much about that. Anyway, cut a long story short, I went into the industrial school through the courts. And once you got into the courts and into the industrial school, your parents, no matter who they were, had no right over you, no rights. You were the property of the state. And I was um, exactly 14 years and 10 months old when I was taken there by two nuns into a Magdalen laundry and I was expected to stay there for life. That was what happened to us. Elizabeth, I I do want to ask you a little bit later about your own experience of dealing with the state as an adult coming back looking for information and looking for redress and those types of things. Um, But before I do that, I do want to ask Caelan I mean, listening to to that story there, that's one of many thousands of stories. And and one of the things is it traverses different types of institutions and they've come, this information has dribbled out over 20 or 30 years. Uh, your book, which I which I referenced at the at the start of the podcast, um, is a really interesting exploration of that from the point of view of somebody who not only was too young to remember it, but wasn't was born well after this system had had finally essentially essentially come to a close. But there's been a lot of controversy around this report. Um, we might come a little bit later to the, the manner of its delivery and the experience of the, of the people, how it was given to them, or not given to them, in fact. Um, but the report itself, there's a lot of controversy about the wording and the question of where blame lies. What what do you make of all that? I think what Elizabeth said, and, and you know, I've spoken to so many women who had, you know, very similar experiences to Elizabeth. And uh, these terms, fallen women, offenders, they were terms used by the state and the church. I've seen them in official documents that treat women as criminals, as as offenders. Um, and I think it's important, while that, that language is so harmful, uh, to show how church and state described these women and, and it reflects how they were treated. And I think going to language and, and the way that the report described these institutions, um, on the first page of this report, it describes them as as a refuge. And I think that was so hurtful and <clears throat> harmful um, to survivors who know that uh, th- these institutions were never refuges for them. Uh, they were places um, where women were treated as as if they had committed a, an offence for being pregnant. And that's how the system was set up to deal with so-called offenders and women who were described as fallen women, even though that you know the only thing <laughs> that they were sent to the institutions for was becoming pregnant. Um, so treating pregnancy as an offense and and something to be to, to be almost criminalized because they were unmarried. Um, and and so I think that 
one of the failings of the report has been to acknowledge um, the, the the lived experiences of survivors, even as it documents uh, the abuses and the injustices um, that women and and people born in these institutions describe in their testimonies. So it's it's kind of a, a bit of a con- confounding report in, in that sense, in that it contradicts itself throughout. Um, it, it you know it calls these places refuges and then goes on to to you know document the conditions uh, that led to the deaths of nine thousand children. We know now, um, as well in the executive summary in, in the first pages of the report, it says that women were not forced by church and state into these institutions, even though it it, it then acknowledges that in many cases they had no choice. So it, it, that to me seems sort of a question of semantics. If you have no choice, then you are forced. And, w- you know, within the report, it documents uh, testimonies of survivors and evidence to show that um, Gardee did bring women who had been sexually assaulted and raped, women who were homeless, directly to the mother and baby institutions. Um, so, you know, law enforcement, the arm of the state were involved in in taking women and sending women uh, to these institutions. Social workers um, were involved, doctors, many people in public services um, facilitated uh, women being sent to these institutions. Uh, so I think that that was deeply hurtful as well. Um, and uh, Michael D. Higgins uh, came out with, I think, a statement today uh, about the report, and he quite firmly um, stated that the responsibility lies with the state and with the church. And uh, he was, of course, part of, I think, what was known as the unholy trinity in the 70s, which was fighting to abolish the status of illegitimacy um, and and fight for more rights and protections for mothers uh, so that they could keep their children. Um, but, the, you know, th- these attempts to reform and change legislation were fought throughout uh, I think in the 70s, there was a senator who opposed um, legislation that would make it easier for women to actually uh, apply for child support from from fathers. Uh, and he said it would be dangerous in this climate of strident and vengeful feminism uh, that women would be blackmailing fathers. Um, so, you know, I think when we when the report came out and said, that, you know, it's society, it's families, it's the fathers to blame, if we're talking about society, it was it was a, a very particular section of society um, that was involved in, you know, keeping this legislation in place. The report acknowledges that the status of illegitimacy continuing until 1987. I was born in 1988. My parents weren't married, so if I had been born a year before, I would have been legally um, illegitimate. That that terrible and and very hurtful term. Um, and, you know, this resulted in, um, a, you know, a tradition where fathers' names weren't on their birth certs. Um, survivors talk about being daughters or children of the dash because the father's name was where it was meant to be was only a dash. Um, and in many cases that, you know, that was because of this legislation. It was because of policy that was driven through. And, you know, in my research and in, in writing the book, I went back through Eructus reports, uh, doll debates, and you can see how the system is set up and created. Um, Elizabeth, you know, talking about the the county homes, which which you know were were inhumane, the conditions that people were forced to live in within those institutions. 
they they came out of the workhouse system and the poor law that was imposed on Ireland by the British. And you can see in debates um, within within government uh, and within the Shannad, um, I, I, someone actually came forward and said, you know, we have all these empty workhouses now that we're, you know, a, a, a brand new state. We have this sort of system created by the poor law. Why don't we put unmarried mothers into this system and hand it over to the religious orders? Um, there, you know, the the death rates in these institutions were known from the first years, really, that this this system operated um, in the nineteen twenties. Uh, the the rates of of mortality, uh, the death rates for children who were uh, legally illegitimate uh, were sometimes five times that of you know so called legitimate children, and alarms were raised. There were reports created. Um, Alice Litzer, who was one of the inspectors of these institutions, said that uh, children seen as illegitimate had a better chance of survival in the slums of Dublin than in these special homes created by the state. Um, so it's not that the state didn't know the conditions in these institutions and it's not that the state didn't know um, the, the deaths, the, the very high number of deaths that were occurring. It's It's that for some reason, nothing was done. And I think that reason is is that these lives were not valued. And also there was a, a sense of these women being a burden on the taxpayer or a concern that, you know, in the way that they were described as offenders, they were also classified into first offenders and multiple offenders. And the idea that, you know, women would go on and get pregnant again was a reason that they were sent to the Magdalene laundries after the mother and baby homes. So all these institutions were connected, and I think the way that these commissions of investigation have um, gone ahead is is to sort of uh, silo um, these systems to, to to say, oh well, we had uh, we had the industrial schools, and then we had the Magdalene laundries, and now we have the mother and baby homes uh, institutions. So so sort of separating them out through these reports doesn't reflect um, how this was an interconnected system. And how many people went through all three of these institutions and and generations of families. So women who were born in mother and baby institutions, sent to industrial schools, given no education about their bodies, about sex. Um, Once the government stopped giving money, uh, I think at the age of, of 16, they were often turfed out of those institutions quickly became pregnant often um, and were sent back to a mother and baby institution and then sometimes onto a Magdalene laundry. And their children often suffered the same cycle of institutionalisation. There's an awful lot to talk about there, but there's one thing I want to talk about, uh, ask you about in relation to the report. I mean, reading it, it seems to me that there was uh, an intention, and, and not for me to, to decide what the motivation for this is, to point to some things which are true, that some of these activities were rooted in in cultures and beliefs which were deeply embedded in the, in the society of the time about the way in which a society should be run and the consequences for certain actions. But, but accepting that that all is true, uh, as Caelan has said there, the language which is used is offensive and in some ways deeply hurtful to the to the victims of these institutions. And it fails, I think, it fails to recognise the fact that there was an institutional conspiracy between the new Irish state and the empowered Catholic Church at the start of the 20th century to implement this system and to keep it going. Um, and that they 
bear by far the primary responsibility and that it could be seen, and it is seen in some quarters, listening to Catherine Connolly speaking in the Dáil this, this week, it can be seen as offensive um, to, to argue otherwise. The Irish were, for so long, I think we as an, I say we because I am Irish, we as Irish people, what I know of, growing up there, in spite of the, the horrors of my life, we're great for blaming other countries for our, oh, the British did that to us, they did this to us. Yes, of course they did. But our own government, who were fighting, they'll tell you, they were f- fighting for the emancipation of Ireland. They get it. What do they do? They repress half of their citizens. So are they worse? And why are they doing it? It's a good question. Pat, I want to put it to you about the tone of the report and there's been a lot of criticism we've heard of it. Yeah, I think um, I think there have been questions about both the tone and uh, some of the uh, some of the details in it. You know, there are inaccuracies in some of the details uh, that the report presents. That that much is clear, um, and also the overriding judgment, which is in actually the very first page uh, of the report. I think in the, in 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 the third paragraph that responsibility principally lies with the families and uh, the families of these women and with the fathers uh, of their children for the treatment that they endured. And that has been interpreted in uh, in some quarters, in many quarters, uh, in fact, including, as Keelan says, by the president in his statement this morning as somehow downplaying the responsibility of both the church and the state for uh, for what happened uh, to the women and their children in in these homes, and I think it's perfectly legitimate to question uh, that judgment. I do think we did we probably need to pay some degree of deference to the fact that you know the authors of the report spent a very long time looking at this. They uh, uh, much longer than uh, than than many of the people who have been commenting on it. They heard an awful lot of evidence and they reached their judgments. I think uh, in good faith. That is not to say that those judgments are beyond challenge, or indeed that those judgments are uh, are correct. And I think that that's a, a debate about those judgments, uh, which it's it's. Um, uh, I think which is perfectly proper to have and to have for Irish society to have over uh, a period of time. The one thing that it seems to me that there is general agreement on and uh, and I think it's 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 something that the 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 survivors and and uh, and the victims of what happened in 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 some of these institutions might take solace from is that the many of the requests that they've been making for a long time now for their stories to be heard for them to be appropriately remembered uh, and for the access to the documents that will unlock for some of them uh, a past that has been hidden from them until now and to which they have in my view a perfectly legitimate expectation should be, uh, uh, you know, should be theirs to know. Uh, I I think that there is uh, 
now, as a result of this week, a political will to achieve that, aside altogether from the question of redress in financial terms, I think righting the historic wrongs that have been done to people by providing them with information and commemoration is something that I think they can now look forward to. What do you think of that, Elizabeth? I disagree with a lot of that. Sorry, because when Ender Kenny stood up in the doll, he said we will honour all of Judge Quirk's recommendations. It was all of these same things again, memorials, a, a site to put all our history in. Uh, this was supposed to have been done five years ago. So why did they wait till the cameras were on them again five, nearly six years later to apologise again? What are they apolo- apologising for when they haven't even implemented um, most of Judge Quirk's recommendations? We were supposed to be getting uh, the HAA card. And then I, I was even invited by people in power in Dublin when I lived in Kerry then to go up there and see them debating about this medical card. And you should have seen when I look back what a load of bull was going on, in particular with the men politicians, you know, feeding us lunch, me and my husband in, in, in Parliament. And we didn't get that medical card. No. There, uh, and then when we were uh, invited back, another recommendation was by Judge Quirk uh, to go back to um, Ireland for a reunion. If it wasn't for the justice for Magdalene's, we wouldn't have had that. They had to fight for that. And then uh, the shirt. then, when we went back to Ireland for the reunion, which is a quite a big occasion, turn around, didn't even say to us, welcome. And that's the Taoiseach who stood up in power, Leo Varadkar, and said, this is a, tra- a time for truth-telling or accepting the truth or something. That man did sweet FA for, for any of us. I was, I've got emails I sent him and asked him time and time again, why are we not getting our medical records we were promised? Why are we not getting the, the memorials places done? Why have you not done it? He didn't care. But then on Wednesday, he was practically in tears, the hypocrite. No, I've got no time for these men. And then the, the new Taoiseach, he was much better. That's how I see it. I'm sorry, and my words are very harsh, but what else are they gaining? What control are they? What, what, where are they coming from? Are they getting off on this control arc? Well, let me put some of that, Elizabeth, to Caelan. The, kind of the, the extreme scepticism uh, based on her own lived experience, which Elizabeth expresses there, Caelan, seems to be one of the things we saw this week was a, was a sign of that perhaps spreading a bit broader. There's something about, a lot of people have pointed out that these ritual uh, apologies in the doll that we've had several of them now for maybe four, four Taoiseachs in a row, uh, they seem to be losing whatever power they had. And that's partly because of the absence of delivery, which Elizabeth is uh, is describing there on previous promises. Uh, and partly because they they just, they I don't know, I'm not going to say that Michal Martin or Leo Varadkar wasn't being honest this week, but there's a disjunction between the words and the actions, isn't there? I think the problem, um, I, I think survivors have been let down for just so many years by the state, um, promising uh, that they understand now and then that they are sorry, but then not taking any action and not listening uh, to survivors about what they what their needs are. 
Um, I, I think that the problem as well, the, the danger with these apologies, um, especially one that was rushed through so quickly, uh, is that they, they treat this as something in the past. And I think um, people can come to think as well that people want access to their documents or records to, to better understand their past. But this is an issue of our present and our future. There are people alive today sitting on government, on, on state agency wait lists. Uh, and young people, people born in, in institutions the year I, I was born, 1988, and even, you know, even younger people beginning to try and trace and search for information about their mothers and about their origins and, and being put on wait list for sometimes two, three years, worried that the people that they're trying to find and reunite with might die in that time. And I've spoken to people where that has happened. They've been sat on a, on a, on a wait list for information and tracing and their father or their mother ha has died during that time. And that is that is just a pain, uh, uh, you know, and an injustice I think is very difficult um, to imagine if you're not uh, someone going through this. So, you know, this is a very urgent issue. Adopted people in Ireland are still denied access to their original birth certificate and identity, even though that has been normal in the UK and most of the rest of the world for decades. Um, there's still, you know, a sort of resistance uh, to acknowledging that right to identity um, and, and, and many, many barriers put in place. I also think that there was a quote, I think it might have been for, from the Tónishto, um uh, on the day of the apology that, that talked about, uh, you know, the, the harms of institutionalization and how that, you know, it created um, harmful power structures and how it should never happen again. And, and I think hearing that from this government that has, has you know, um, failed to, to dismantle the system of direct provision, which has uh, put more people in, in emergency accommodation and sought new systems of, of, of institutionalization for vulnerable people, um, I think that was really hard to swallow for a lot of people. And also, again, recognizes this sort of institutionalization as something only of the past when I think we are repeating um, or, or perpetuating those systems today. Uh, but but with the report, it, it it really reads to me, and and it is it's it's thousands of pages long. It um it I think it it holds a lot of very important information because the people researching this had access, um to to you know unlimited access to files, um and and the right to go into let's say a diocesan archive and actually take files or, or look through those files and and sort of demand information. Um, rights and of access that no journalist or researcher has had up to this point. And so there is there is very valuable information in this report. But I think it's it's then the overall conclusions um, that the report comes to, given all that evidence and given all that information, which is strange. And, and there are inaccuracies. I mean, I mean um, even simple things like there's a claim in the report that uh, no member of the Daughters of Charity who worked in St. Patrick's, which was the biggest mother and baby home in the country, um, was alive to, to, to give evidence or to testify um, to this, the conditions there. Um, that uh, is, is blatantly false because I've spoken with a woman, uh, a nun, who worked as a midwife in St. Patrick's for many years. And she had uh, very clear memories of the women that came in. She remembered one woman coming in with two corsets over her pregnant stomach to try and hide her pregnancy. She had plenty to say. And I think there are a lot of individual um, 
religious sisters who do have a lot to say, and I found on an individual le- uh, level, um, did want to speak, but there was uh, an, still an institutional silence. There were the religious orders, when I approached them, um, consulted with lawyers, and there was immediately silence, um, and I was not given further information. And there is talk, I mean, within the report of how redress um, will be decided, and I think... Um, it was pointed out that uh, it suggested that after 1973, when the unmarried mother's allowance was brought in, um, women sent to the institutions after those years shouldn't receive redress because the work they would have done in the institutions was equivalent to work they would have done at home. Um, I guess the expected work that women um, uh, would have been doing at home. But uh, these were women sent institutions, their names stripped from them, given house names, forced to scrub the floors of these institutions, look after the, the children of other women um, who, like them, had been separated from their babies. I, I think it's, it's, it really you know, does not um, appreciate uh, the experiences of these women and, and seeks throughout to dismiss their experiences. Um, so very confusing why there seems to be a constant attempt to explain away the testimonies and the evidence. Um, and and this, this system operated for longer than people think. Um, the report has a chapter on the castle, which I, um, I think I wrote in depth about for the first time. I managed to get the original files from before the report uh, came out while I was writing the book. Um, and that that institution in Donegal operated until two thousand and six. Um, so I was around seventeen at that time. I could have been sent to a place like that. Uh, and within the report, I spoke to the woman who ran the place. I spoke to a woman who worked as a volunteer there um, with the crisis pregnancy agency Cura, which was set up by Catholic bishops. And the report it does uh, actually document how uh, members of Cura. Uh, which was run by the Catholic hierarchy, sat on the board of this institution that operated till 2006. And the house mother, the woman who who helped to, to run it, who was a laywoman, um, described how simple things like women's health education uh, was discouraged within that home, within that institution, because, um, because of the religious influence. Um, and I think it's important to, 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 you know, those testimonies are important. But at the end of that chapter in which it documents all this, it has a quote from, I think, someone who was there as a child saying uh, he, he felt like it was a holiday when he was there. So, so this is strange attempt to sort of um, to, to, to contradict um, the, the reality within, within these institutions. Might it be fair, though, just to suggest that they're trying to paint the full picture? Even that, you know, that in the same way as you would, and people have made these comparisons, I'm uncomfortable with them sometimes, and sometimes they seem appropriate, with, you know, Nazi Germany or other, you know, other abusive regimes and societies in which people did terrible things, that people still smiled and some people still thought it was okay. I think that um, in terms of, I mean, that example just struck me because, I, you know, a child feeling like they were on holiday is really fairly irrelevant. Um to uh, the realities of that institution. Um, you know, a child is, is uh, I mean, I'm very glad that they were made to feel that way, but that doesn't really reflect the experience um, of the women there. Sure. 
Uh, and I think it is important to acknowledge, you know, that that this was a discrimination that that was uh, within society, within the culture. But I think we need to ask what, what the origin of that is. And, and it is in legislation and it is in doctrine of the church that was pushed on society and forced on society. Um, and so, you know, society doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm constantly sort of asked, well, what about the families? Uh, what about the fathers? I think this, you know, report... Uh, uh, from what I've seen, it uh, doesn't cover as well the, the, the fight that many fathers took on to keep their children. There are court cases from the 60s and 70s of fathers going to court to try and gain custody of their children who were in institutions and bring them home. Um, and I know speaking to fathers as well who either weren't told that uh, a woman was pregnant or um, were denied the right to see their children. Uh, a woman sent to Chum, um said her her a man who had wanted to marry her but wasn't allowed because of the stigma came and visited her in in the institution he was the father of her child uh, and he was allowed to see her by the nuns but not allowed to see his own daughter um so you know it was a culture of misogyny but misogyny also affects men uh, and i think so that putting the blame on families and fathers um ignores the the institutional forces at play Pat, I want to ask you about one very specific issue, which which Kaylin, I think, touched on, I think, at, at, at one point. And it is this question of access to records, and in particular in this case, access to birth uh, to birth records. And she points out that um, we don't grant those rights in the same way as most Western civilised countries do. There's been resistance to that. There is clearly a question of competing rights on the one hand to, to privacy and on the other hand to your own personal information. I listened with interest to former Minister Joan Burton uh, earlier this week on the radio, who's adopted herself, talking about her experience as a minister when dealing with de- department officials and a general obduracy, obfuscation, resistance, choose whatever word you want, to making this information available. And it struck me listening to her that what I was hearing there was a description of the fact that the kind of attitudes which led to the setting up and the running of those homes and the treatment of those women... Um, we think of them as being entirely in the past, but there are parts of them that continue uh, in terms of the way in which the state arrogates to itself the rights over its citizens that continue to, right up to the present day. Yeah, I, I think that's um, I think that's probably fair, Hugh. There is a, a disempowerment, I think, of uh, people, adopted people who are looking for their own uh, records when they are denied them as a right. And I mean, to some extent, this is or has been a legal wrangle. There have been legislative attempts to provide for access to some birth records uh, as far back as 2001. There was uh, a heads of a bill that were uh, drafted, um, uh, but never got anywhere. And there's been a couple of attempts uh, thus far. The most recent one was in 2016 when Catherine Zappone was the minister and she was advised by the uh, attorney general that to that the existing balance of rights between the privacy of of mothers and the right of their children to uh, to access their birth records and thus learn their birth uh, identities 
um, that, that, that that was set constitutionally in stone, as it were. And to change that would require a constitutional uh, amendment. And it's recommended in the, um, in the report that if a constitutional amendment is necessary, then that should, uh, is what should be pursued by government. But m- my understanding um, is that the government is currently advised by a different attorney general that it can legislate to, to rebalance those rights and can legislate to provide people with access to their birth and early life records, including adoption uh, records, uh, without a constitutional amendment. And that is to be, without getting into legal technicalities of it too much, that is to be grounded in the European data legislation. And it's my understanding that that's what they're now going to pursue with. But I think there's a deeper question of culture. And maybe that's where your question is coming from, is that the enthusiasm with which people have been denied their records is in many respects an echo of, and that is, you know, up to the present day that people have been denied their records. I think that is a very strong echo of the sort of treatment that was meted out to people uh, in, uh, in, in the past. And I think very possibly, yeah, it does come from the same place. Uh, Elizabeth, I want to give you the, the, the last word on this. You had very harsh words for the politicians who you mentioned earlier on. Given that, what hope or expectation do you have that the measures that you think are required, that you'll see them happen? Um, give me my medical records. I'm 72 and I still haven't got my medical records. I want evidence of my trial vaccinations. Why else are they withholding my information? To be open and honest and just and fair. Uh, do I trust the politicians? No. Is it ever going to change? If they could begin by, as I said at the start, by communicating with all cross parties and no secrets and no accidentally slipping information to other to the media or because it's all political games they're playing up and down the corridor of power. And I would also like, when they're discussing this with other people in power who've been elected, such as Catherine Connolly and Mary Lou and whoever, I would also like to see some of the faceless um, civil servants there as well discussing it, because... I think that's got a lot to do with it as well. A lot of these civil servants, nobody knows who they are. I certainly don't know. They're making decisions about my life, about my mum's life, about women's uh, children who were adopted illegally. Everything is to do with these as well. And these are the ones they are not getting the blame. Yes, the government deserves to get the blame because they should use their common sense, which none of them appear to have at the moment. And it's the... These faceless civil servants, I think they should be in a room discussing it openly with other politicians because they're the ones that are not getting the blame. They're the ones that Irish people should be calling out because they have not been elected. And who are they? Who are these civil servants? They're nobody special. They're just people who are making decisions on people's lives and haven't got a clue because so far they haven't got it right. We will leave it there. But Elizabeth, thanks very much indeed for, for coming on today. Thanks also to Caelan and Pat uh, and also to our producer, Suzanne Brennan. If you would like to get in touch with the podcast, we always like to hear your reaction. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 